Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. My name's Josh Miles. I'm a designer, principal, and brand strategist at Miles Herndon, a branding agency in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. Today on Obsessed with Design, I catch up with Douglas Davis, author, designer, and freelance creative director. Doug and I talk about his inspiration for his book, how he started a digital department within his first agency, and the things he's most obsessed with right now. So please enjoy my conversation with Douglas Davis. All right, guys, welcome all the way from Brooklyn, author of Creative Strategy and the Business of Design, digital marketer, freelance, art and creative director, advertising and design educator, Douglas Davis. Douglas, thanks for being on Obsessed with Design. Thank you for having me, Josh. I know it's a mouthful, so I apologize in advance for all those different uh, titles there. <laughs> we were joking around with our uh, our guest last week, Bob Ewing, that he needs to let a few of these things go because he had he had too many. But I, I think you may have almost like doubled his list. So nice work. You know, the crazy thing about it is that if I didn't have these different titles, I wouldn't actually know what day it is because uh, <laughs> you know, based on the hat that I need to wear, that's how I actually know what day it is. So if I take anything out, you know, I may shorten my my week in a dangerous way. So <laughs> I hear that. So you and I actually got introduced because I had reached out to the guys at how and uh, we're chatting to them about something else. And they were like, Oh, Hey, you need to, you need to meet Doug. You need to, to see about this book. And I bet he'd be a good fit for the show. So I tracked you down and I'm, I'm glad we did. Yeah. I'm glad we did as well. Yeah. I'll just look to those guys for, for uh, putting me on your radar. Well, I, they were kind enough to shoot me a copy and I will admit that I'm about 50 pages into it and I'm digging the book so far. It's definitely personally right up my alley. So guys, if you're listening, be sure to check out Creative Strategy in the Business of Design available on Amazon. We'll talk a little bit about that later, but Douglas, I'm curious how you got hooked up with how in the first place, what was the introduction or how'd they find you or vice versa? Yeah, so LinkedIn. I mean, I think it was probably about summer, late summer, 2012. Uh, someone from How Design University reached out. Um, they wanted to start ramping up their professional development for designers. They wanted a course that focused on my sweet spot, which is uh, design as well as strategy. And uh, this was for an online workshop. And it's like, um, you know, online class, you get to experience the class at your leisure, four lessons across four weeks. And after nine four week offerings later, uh, they had made about 17 grand. And so that got my attention concerning uh, the, 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 the content resonating uh, with the design community. So that led to a whole bunch of other things. Oh, that's awesome. That's, uh, that's pretty speedy too. Yeah, I was, uh, I was surprised as well. I think my eyes were so wide. I was like, what? Wow. <laughs> you did what? Maybe I'm not the only one going through this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, between your, your list of things, and maybe it's hard to know which hat to answer this question from, but, but what's kind of your origin story? What's your background that got you into this creative world of design and advertising? Wow. Well, I mean, if I go way back, if you remember uh, those draw me um, pamphlets uh, with the pirate or the turtle on them, <laughs> I go way, way back. But I just I do remember uh, just my passion for art and drawing uh, started when um, my cousins took me to the state fair. I'm from South Carolina originally. They won one of those mirrors where they were throwing the darts at the balloons. And uh, I went home that night and decided for whatever reason uh, to draw Garfield. And uh, after, my, after my mom asked me, did I trace you know, this? And I said, no, uh, that was really the beginning of, of my interest in art. But we fast forward a bit to talk about my entry into the design world. It, it, it becomes the story of the professor who had no intention of going to college. Uh, it's funny that during my uh, high school sort of junior year, 
I, I don't know where I was thinking coming up with this stuff, but I thought to myself, you know, if I don't go to college, I want to make sure that it was because I decided not to go versus the fact that I could not go. So I went to summer school voluntarily. I started taking an SAT three times just to get the best score possible. And then uh, when I finally graduated, I had no plan in having applied to a grand total of zero colleges. Uh, I stumbled onto a recruiting conversation uh, about Hampton University and while I was volunteering uh, because I had all the requirements exposure in a sense meant that opportunity and uh it's funny that i was going to enroll in the fashion merchandising program and when i finally got to virginia uh six hours later when i got there uh i found out that they had phased that program out and so i chose graphic design um and if i fast forward one more time uh just to to talk about the, the strategy and the marketing part of this um i'm in new york uh, after completing my master's in communications design at Pratt, I'm freelancing at an advertising agency for a few months where I'm, I'm pretty much bored, but I love hanging out with the people that I'm working with. Uh, and after about three months, um, you know, they didn't really need me to set the headlines and the images. I wasn't doing anything conceptual. It was just sort of, you know, there freelancing. Um, and I was working on the HSBC account. And then one day someone in a panic comes into the conference room and they're like, the client needs a website. And after I paused a bit, and this is back in probably like maybe 2004, 2005, uh, after that person comes in in a panic, I raise my hand and I say, well, I know how to do that. <laughs> and from there, I, I start to talk through all the ways that we've basically for the, the, the last three months left money on the table. Um, because we weren't offering digital. And I just went down the litany of clients that we were serving, mm-hmm. talked about what the missed opportunities were. Um, and so I ended up pitching the creative director and the CEO of the agency. And at that point, they allowed me to start the digital arm of this little boutique agency within JWT. Um, and uh, from there, we had a great 18-month run. But after a while, I realized that I started losing battles because uh, I wasn't able to justify the business and marketing considerations. Uh, I wasn't able to talk about what I needed in terms of staffing in the context of how it was or was not going to solve the the client's business problem. And so I would fall back on my aesthetic um, vocabulary because I didn't understand what strategy or business was because I I wasn't taught that in design school, even though I was able to to do really well at a very young age. And so uh, that really started my quest to, to become the creative who understood business. So that's, that's how I got into art. I guess I could say it was a bit of a progression. <laughs> art led to design, which led to advertising or marketing strategy. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's few and far between clients who really um, don't gloss over when you start talking about white space and kerning and, pixel dimensions and all this stuff. But, you know, as you talk about in the book, um, you know, learning the language of business and figuring out how to apply that across creative strategies, I think is, is pretty essential for anybody that wants to move up the ladder. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's very interesting because as we as creative professionals uh, do what we were trained to do in terms of solving uh, client problems, um, we're rewarded for, that excellence in that design execution or the ability to craft that app or to come up with a really interesting uh, website that people end up responding to. And so therefore you're, you find yourself in a different room with different responsibilities where there's a completely different conversation happening and it happens to be uh, in the same spot where it was outside of the scope of what your design training was, because now we're talking the language that's spoken on the other side of the brain. And so uh, I was completely unprepared for those conversations. Um, and I did my best, but it, it, it's pretty frustrating at times whenever you know that something is the right way to go creatively, um, but you can't articulate mm-hmm. it in a way that would allow others to see what your point of view is, or maybe even to, um, tamp down on some of the fear in the room or 
you know, increase the trust in this crazy, you know, creative person that, you know, that's the right way to go. It, it can get really challenging that you get rewarded for doing what you do well, but then you do have to seek to gain skills that you weren't necessarily trained uh, on in order to do well at that next phase. So connect a few of the dots for us here too, for, um, you know, fast forward from that, that digital role to today, you're doing your own thing, you're teaching, you're writing, you know, um, where did, where did those things come into play and how much longer were you with that agency before you decided to pursue some of these other ideas? You know, it, gosh, man, this is a, a wild story. Uh, one of my uh, first creative partners and I, I basically reached out to him whenever they were allowing me, probably the youngest person at the agency, um, to become the head of this new digital arm. And, you know, we were freelancing there on a whole host of clients for about 18 months. We had a pretty good run, um, but we were also freelancing on the side and we we kind of uh, messed up and won um, a large piece of business on the side. So now <laughs> I have a full-time and I have this other account. Um, we were poached to a different agency. And um, it's funny because my friend left first because he was a freelancer, but I was the only one that was full-time. And so uh, I, I remember like it was yesterday, the creative director screaming at me because I didn't, tell him that this other guy was leaving. And then he asked me what I was going to do. You know, and I said, well, I'm going to preserve the partnership. And then he says, well, what do you want? And I was like, well, I want a hundred thousand dollars and no boss. And I'm a little kid at this point. <laughs> he laughs at me and little did he know I already had that from the people who hired us to sort of, continue with this other uh, account that we won. So we left there in about 18 uh, mm -hmm. months. And what was great about that experience is that I then stumbled into a strategy session at this new agency. And I've never, ever been into one before. I, and I didn't understand really, I guess I could describe the format in my, at that time, my perception of the format of a strategy me uh, meeting was like I was brainstorming for a chess match or something. Mm -hmm. And sitting down there, I realized that, oh, this is the thing that I've been needing to understand. Here, here it is. You know, I could recognize what it was, but I didn't understand it as a discipline. And so it was just great to be there and to learn a lot more. And then from there, um, gosh, I, I continued to bounce around. And uh, after winning uh, an equally large piece of business years, some years later, I realized that, you know, hey, it's probably time to become an LLC um, with this client. Um, you know, it's unincorporated business taxes. Following that every year is great and all. But I think it's probably time to become a little bit more formal about mm -hmm. this. Um, and so I put my shingle out there and continue to reach out to people who I had met along the way to, to help me out. So maybe not to sidetrack us too far, but how did you know what to do or who did you lean on like to, to know that you needed to get incorporated or, you know, was that just kind of the DIY thing or did you get an attorney or an accountant to help or did you have a business partner? I did have an accountant and I still, um, I still work with that accountant. Um, I don't know that the prompt came from him though. I think uh, I was realizing that, you know, at that point, you know, after being married, uh, about to get some property, I realized that I needed to probably have a bit more protection uh, concerning my finances that were personal and mm -hmm. was business. But overall, I also realized that after being in the business for uh, maybe I think at that point, it was probably about 13, 13 years or maybe 12, 13 years, that it, it was time to be a bit more formal so that I can uh, grab larger pieces of business. And it wouldn't be like, oh, yeah, well, I'm a freelancer, but I'm pitching. I have the experience, but I'm still a freelancer. This this added sure. a little, you know, uh, formality to things that will allow me to go after, credibly go after larger pieces of business. 
Cool. I think that's helpful. And like, like you said, stumbling into that strategy brainstorming meeting, I think that's where, you know, a lot of young designers find themselves on the business side. They're like, well, I don't, I sort of have heard of these things called incorporation or whatever, but you know, they don't know where to start. Yeah. There are a lot of resources out there from the freelancers union to uh, what Elise Brennan does with marketing mentor um.com there's there's quite a bit of resources out there and i think it's going to be really important to any young designers listening to make sure that they are involved um with like the indianapolis chapter the aiga or whatever their local chapter or the aiga is um Mm -hmm. it's just really important to make sure that you are plugged into that design community um that's that's one of the keys to survival i believe Cool. So maybe let's uh, circle back to where you were going with the story about kind of how this brought you to the the teaching and the the writing side. Absolutely. So um, what's interesting is that, and this is something that I've had to pay attention to myself over time to learn. Um, And I hope that the creatives listening are paying attention. If you hate something, try to understand why. If you love something, try to understand why. And, and because oftentimes we're people of extremes, um, I think, you know, when you do have such an extreme reaction on one side or the other, it, it's important to pay attention. But w- from those reactions, I've realized that uh, I need three outlets to remain stable um, in order to not to be bored, I believe. I can say it that way. Um, I have an artistic outlet strategic outlet and a client service outlet because I do like people and uh, you know the artistic outlet is really the the teaching uh, teaching undergraduates um, or teaching young designers who are who are in the field how to become more strategic Um, I I love uh, taking someone who has a raw talent or an interest like much like I did when I was young in drawing or illustration or or writing and then helping them to turn that interest and that raw talent into something that's polished and viable. Um, And it's amazing whenever those students um, get jobs that I've held before. And and that's, that's one of the, the artistic uh, benefits. I need that outlet to help people to, to use what they have. The strategic side of things. Um, I teach in the graduate program in the uh, branding and integrated communications program. It's a master's in uh, professional studies at City College. And um, that came about just for the same way that I had stumbled into that strategy session. Um, I do love the elevated conversation of sort of how you twist the Rubik's Cube. I, I don't believe that there's necessarily a right way or a wrong way to solve a solution. It's just how you twist the Rubik's Cube, what your right answer is and why you think it's right. And so it's great to take graduate students and expose them to real clients and have them simulate the process that you and I go through every day um, in our design firms or in different creative projects. And then the client service outlet, um, opening the Davis Group LLC was exactly sort of the extension of what I was doing uh, since the days at Pratt. It's funny because Pratt, um, I always say Pratt didn't prepare me to get a job. Pratt prepared me for when there were no jobs. So yeah, that, That's a great point. So, um, and I think that that uh, has been the way that I not only pay the mortgage, but pay for my family and to just, it's been great to, to say that I could um, make a living um, as a creative person doing what I do and, and I can work for myself. I'm on my couch in my living room downstairs uh, right now, even though I've been at work all day. So those are the three outlets that, that I need to have. Um, and it does help to be a fan of the industry, just as I'm also a practitioner. I love design. I love um, what we do. Uh, I love to talk to people about what we do. I love to experience what we do all over the world. Um, so those are my three outlets. 
So when it comes to like making and doing right now, what are some of your favorite things to work on in that category? You know, it's interesting because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really, really now exploring the words behind the pictures. Um, I'm in the infancy of, of my exploration of words. And I, I was, again, I was as a trained uh, graphic designer and then later an art director. I came from the, the visual side of things. And now I'm finding the, the beauty and the creativity that is expressed in words. When I was at Pratt, um, distinguished typographer, um, Tony Despina, he was a partner of Herb Lubalin back in the day. He, would, he was my professor and he would say, you know, it's been said a, a picture's worth a thousand words, but in the hands of the right designer, a word is worth a thousand pictures. And that always stuck in my head. And so I think one of the things that I really enjoy doing right now these days is I love writing witty lines. I love, um, you know, writing words that inspire images. Um, That's what I'm really into. And it's great because it allows me to focus on the process of creativity. And that's what I'm focused on quite a bit now working on a project that I'll be presenting tomorrow in Philadelphia to Sella Consulting. And um, really a lot of what I'm doing is filling the gap um, that is left between creative people not studying business and business people in business school not being taught how to inspire creatives. So words can inspire pictures, visual language, I guess. And that quote from Tony, he was uh, he was the one that did the script work on your book. Is that right? Yes, yes, yes. So I came up with this awful scribble because uh, he's he's amazing, and um, I I really a lot of time. It's funny now. I used to draw with so many details, and now I'm I use thumbnails and and just to get down a gesture of the actual idea itself. So I sketched this brain that was Spencerian script, terrible sketch. And um, I, I take great pride in being able to hire the best people, but it's even sweeter when they happen to have taught you. So <laughs> to hire my professor, it was great. That's pretty awesome. And of course, his, his pedigree and working with, with Herb, that's, that's, I'm sure, lots of stories there. So many stories, man. Does, you know, it's funny, um, art school at Pratt and uh, different times throughout the years, I went to continuing education classes at SVA. I'm always in a class. I always like to learn something regardless of how many master's degrees I have or what I've done before. I'm never too old to learn something, I hope. But I, it's funny because I think back to those classes and I was so involved in the stories that they would tell these designers who would work with people like Massimo Vignelli and Saul Bass and, and Herbie Ballin and all these different people. And it would be very difficult to know when to take notes because the, the stories were so interesting. And so there were so many stories and then eventually I'd be like, oh my gosh, I think I'm supposed to write this down. So story <laughs> uh, a large part of what we do and uh, definitely a large part of um, art school. Yeah, similarly, um, one of my professors studied under uh, Paul Rand when oh. he was at Yale. So it's, you know, we would get all these awesome Paul Rand stories and um, everything from, you know, how he interacted with with a printer and how he would look at proofs to like how he determined he should dress and how he told others they needed to dress to present themselves and just all these little little nuggets of wisdom is so cool to pick those up. So I was reading in your book um, a little bit, and I love this story about the conference that you got invited to speak at that was in Russia. So fill us in a little bit on on the background of that story. In New York, everybody knows somebody. So I had a few Russian students. So I showed them this invite, and they were like, no, like that's legit. And so immediately I'm thinking to myself, it's like, you're inviting me to speak, to do what I do. So my wife and I, we get really excited. We're starting to plan things. 
Um, we know some people in Moscow, so we're like, we'll, we'll make a little mini vacation out of it. And fast forward, I'm on stage and <laughs> the conversation starts in Russian. So I can't understand a thing. And at that point, uh, I had just met the translator maybe an hour early. And he made me feel really at ease. He was saying, you know, like people should feel like we've worked together for years. So when I'm on stage, when I would say a lot, he would translate for a little while. <laughs> but then when I would say a little bit, he would say, go on. And so I would keep talking, but he would only translate for a little, little while. So it, it would just be like, it was very difficult to understand if I connected with the audience or not. So four speakers were there. He was the only translator the whole time. So I say to my wife, when I get from the stage, when I get down from the stage, I say, hey, that was kind of weird. I didn't know, you know, you're being translated. You don't know whether people understood anything. So after the whole day of the conference, he's translated three individual presentations and three panel discussions. Sorry, four. Because there are four of us. So we're all congratulating him and saying how much he's worked because we only had to give one presentation and speak on one panel. And I turned to him and I say, you know, thank you so much because without you, we wouldn't have been able to actually connect with the audience. And he turns to me and he says, actually, I didn't know how to communicate most of what you guys were saying. <laughs> so if you can imagine, Josh, like, so I, I, I get that deep eye gaze with this guy for about like, you know, half a minute just to see if he's joking. He's not joking. And so at that point, after all of that work flying all the way out here, they pay me double my rate, paid all the expenses. My wife is there as well. This guy says he doesn't, he didn't really know how to translate most of what we were saying. I say to him, that was worth it just for the story. <laughs> The interesting thing about this is that when you really think about how things are changing in our field in design, um, I I feel like business is annexing design just like it integrated marketing years ago. That's what I think. Mm -hmm. That's what I've seen in the different trends, and I can go into that if we have yeah, time. Yeah, tell me what. Go unpack that a little bit for us. If you if you look at some of the press releases that have been out lately, just over the last year, McKinsey and Company, um, they had this uh, this I guess white paper or opinion piece called um, "Building a Design Driven uh, Culture," and they basically make the point that you can't just engage people with the products and services that you make; you have to engage them on a deeper level. And they were talking about how to use design to do that. Um, in order to figure out why someone wants something versus uh, just understanding that they may or may not like what you have. This is really about differentiation and getting deep down into insights. You can look at companies becoming media properties, um, such as GoPro. There's so many companies that are, are really now starting to create their own content. So I feel like our design jobs, just in these examples, they're, you know, McKinsey is not the only company. There are a lot of them that are also acquiring design capabilities, advertising agencies, IBM, for instance. They're acquiring what we do. The New York Times just recently has also acquired a marketing or a design agency. So I, I look at that and I see that Design is becoming way more, even more important um, to business than it was before because of the fact that business is annexing it in order to have differentiation and in order to compete. So the Russia story was interesting because of the premise that in design school, we weren't taught business. But yet, what we're doing in terms of communication 
um, a lot of our clients in terms of what I've seen, especially if design is being annexed, I've seen a lot of client expectations go from asking me as a creative content creator. Uh, they've also asked me for strategic context. Mm-hmm. So as things continue to evolve, I think the client's expectations are also evolving because they're expecting everyone involved with their brand to be strategic. Now, on the other side, the business side, um, and I can only say this after going through uh, NYU um, and learning business, I realized that business school doesn't teach how to inspire designers. So think about the times that you've left a creative kickoff meeting with either someone internally uh, or an actual client and you've left with like a bloated brief with like the kitchen sink, everything in there, like thick as a phone book, but yet none of it in there really, you have to sort through it all. It's not really helping you because there's so much there wasn't really um, sifted or curated to inspire you or there's essential information missing from the brief and, or there is no process. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is that with, with the Russia story and the point that I make often in the book is that as a, as a designer, as a creative, because the business and marketing environment that we create for is evolving, we have to evolve our skills. And it's very ironic that the very training from either business school or marketing or uh, design school that sort of allows us to become professionals and qualified to be in the room together, it, it leaves out the communication part that allows us to actually talk to each other, even though we're responsible for communicating on behalf of the brand to a target. So with the Russia story, I just find it ironic that it, it mimics a lot of the interaction between groups who are in the room, but they don't know what each other's talking about. Um, they don't have the language to, to really serve the client. And at the end of the day, the client is going to make up his or her mind that the agency is not strategic enough because of our internal communication issues, the gaps there. And it really doesn't matter when they pull the business whose fault it is. Right. Yeah, it's really like a literal example of you could just see this being edited on the fly. You know, you were you're giving this guy all of these words and he just picked a few and translated the ones that made sense to him and pushed those along where, you know, at the client and agency level, that exact same thing has happened. It's not it's not a foreign language. These are all words we understand, but we don't we don't really understand what the other party's talking about. Exactly. And it leads to, you know, terrible, the, the process, when, when the creative process is confusing, how the heck are we supposed to be successful at, at visual communication? <laughs> right. It's like a game of telephone, you know? Yeah. You're just kind of setting up for the, the big lose there. So what do you think it, in that context? I mean, I, you're obviously putting some responsibility on us as the creative team. And, and I completely agree with that, but as you're, you're making those initial contacts or you're kind of doing the initial dance, what do you, what do you think makes for a really great client or how do you, how do you set up what a good client relationship looks like? Right. And I, I think, I think you have to create good clients just like you have to create quality relationships. And and obviously they're the same thing for relationships. And I say you have to create a good client because it's, it is on us to lead the client. Um, Half the time when clients come to us with vague information or incomplete information, it's because they don't know. Mm -hmm. I really do believe that even though there's an infinite amount of things that our clients come to us for in terms of types of projects and things that we could be designing for them, they all really come to us with the exact same request, no matter how it sounds. They're asking us to, to solve their problem. So I think as a result, it's up to us to lead them. And leading the client 
I think, and creating a great business relationship is understanding how they define success in their language and then speaking that language back to them in order to instill or, or to earn the trust that we're going to need in order for them to trust us to do the part of our job that's more familiar to us, but foreign to them. And I think that you, you create great client interaction when you're prepared to lead the client, when you know just as much about their business and maybe even more because you're looking at it from fresh eyes from the outside, when you can walk into that meeting and based on the questions that you ask, show that you've literally not only scoured their website, but you've scoured the places that their customers are. And you've looked at not only what they say about themselves, but you've looked at what the customers say about their products. And you're able to talk about that freely. And then maybe even question some of the answers that the client came to you with and drill down a bit further and maybe even say, Hey, you know, I know you guys think your problem is this, but it's actually that I've, I've won business like that. Um, because when I did ask the client, say, Hey, why'd you, why'd you choose my group? And the response was because you challenged us. Mm. And I, back and I, I realized that I walked into the room after reading the brief and after looking at what they define the problem as, I realized that I have a very I had a very strong opinion about the fact that that was not their problem, was actually this other thing. But without the ability to articulate that in the business uh, terms that they would understand, mm-hmm. I didn't know that I would have been able to gain the trust in order to close the deal. So I think you create great client relationships by dealing with the fear in the room, by making sure that you can speak the same language. You eliminate confusion. So if the onus is kind of on the designer to make the relationship work, are there, are there still things for you that are mm, potential deal killers or red flags that you watch out for? Absolutely. I remember um, maybe about three years ago, uh, very, very uh, articulate um, and, and like almost way more articulate than usual prospect contacted me on LinkedIn, asked me for three of three uh, references, checked those references, had long conversations with everyone. And after about a three week vetting process, uh, wanted to meet me. I took a 45 minute train ride out. Um, they took me out to a really nice dinner where I met this prospect and the business partner. They were siblings. So I asked during this initial meeting if they had a business plan. And the answer was no. And my spidey sense is tingling. The flags are like <laughs> aping like crazy. But I continue to ask questions and try to figure out, okay, so how do I help these people to understand um, that maybe they'll need a business plan? We start talking a bit more and they tell me what their idea is after I sign an NDA. It's terrible. Never going to work. <laughs> Another business, existing business that, has way more capital, all, all this other stuff. Just, it's not going to work awful. So red flags again, like waving, blinking, flashing lights. And for some reason, I was trying to determine a way that I could actually help them. So I, I proposed to them a 16-hour discovery where I would go through certain business principles and tools and determine viability for their idea. At that point, they could take my recommendations and we could either keep going or they could take my recommendations and we could part ways. Mm -hmm. So I thought this would be the way around this. So after about three weeks, I, you know, after I give the presentation, it's about 96 slides. um, I give the presentation, wait for three weeks. They call back. I'm thinking, oh, wow, they must have taken my advice and looked at 
uh, ways to retool this idea to make it original, first of all, but is to figure out how to make it viable. So I write up a proposal. Um, I give them three different options. We go through the process that many of your listeners and you know, you've gone through hundreds of times, very specific what this outlines for how much money for this amount of time. And after 65 emails to confirm, yes, it includes this. No, it includes, you know, it doesn't include that. This is how much money. This is how much time. These are the resources for clarity. 65. <laughs> pretty, pretty par for the course, really. Right. So I'm, you know, they pay the deposit and I'm in my first milestone. So I finished the first milestone. And I'm at the client meeting. And I start to present what they've paid me to do. And after five minutes, I get interrupted. Douglas, we're really disappointed. We thought we'd be much farther along by this point. I then baffled and, and really confused, stopped the presentation and start to try to understand what, what I missed. What did I do that you know is not serving my client? And after checking back this, you know, the checking the record of the 65 emails, I realized that these people didn't understand a word of what they paid me to do twice mm -hmm. at this point. And so are, are there certain responsibilities that do not fall on you? Absolutely. Um, and to be honest with you, I had not really gotten, I've never been in anything like this before. I mean, there, there's situations where, you know, client drags their feet on paying you. And I've been able to navigate those situations um, because I, I am so thorough on my contracts. But this was a completely different experience where I not only followed professional practice to the letter, but I was now in this twilight zone situation. Um, so at some point, you know, you will be in a situation that you can't win. So yes, there are times when it's not the designer's responsibility, but, uh, I feel like nowadays, whenever you, and this situation is rare, um, but I think it, it really does underscore the responsibility that we have to lead our clients. But there's some clients that no matter how much leading, um, you're not going to be able to, to help. So I should have listened to myself. <laughs> so the moral of the story here is listen to those spidey senses. Right. When even, the moral of the story is no means no, even, especially when. <laughs> <laughs> is it, is it a 25 emails or a 45 emails or do you have to get to 62 before you're like, mm, okay, now there's some questions. Like Exactly. Listener, you're going to have to decide where to set the bar, but uh, 65 before you move the first pixel is probably probably more than you're looking for. Yeah, and I will never get that far in the future. It will never go on that long. <laughs> so let's switch gears a little bit. You know, one of my favorite questions to ask everyone on the show is, uh, which I'm going to ask you too, is what would you say you're most obsessed with right now? I think I'm obsessed with the words behind the pictures. I'm obsessed with the, the why behind what things are doing. Um, I, I really, and again, like, you know, I'm not a writer, even though I have this book out, uh, I'm good at what I do and I've learned how to articulate it, but I'm opinionated. And so I realized that it was an audience after the workshop did so well on Howard University. So I wrote it down, but I had to have this crazy idea that, hey, I'm going to pitch a book after, you know, never writing one before. Uh, so I realized that I'm, I'm really interested in the images that, come about as a result of words. And so I'm trying to equip creative teams to, I guess, become more inspired because at the end of the day, 
if the client doesn't really know what they need strategically, then most of the time, nine times out of 10, we're going to have to write it ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so I think I'm, I'm obsessed with helping people to have the tools to figure out how to harness what's happening right now in, in business that has implications for us as designers in order for them to look at what they've been charging and look at the services that they've been offering all along and see the opportunities that they've missed. That's what I'm obsessed with right now. That's a great point. I'm, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm only a whole 50 pages into the book, but I'm just really loving and digging through that. And I'm thinking, okay, this is a book I need to give to, you know, not only read myself, but also share with all of our account managers and, with our creative director, production manager, you know, anybody who's going to have a, a client facing role. I, I think these are strategies that you can apply directly to add value to that client relationship. Absolutely. And I'm hoping it also adds, um, tools that allow us, the people who are supposed to be on the same team, um, as well as, you know, allowing us to, to help us to, to reduce the fear in our client-designer relationships. I'm hoping that we can get to the same page and speak the same language um, within our own team as well, like you are saying. So I, I definitely agree. So, Douglas, do you have any dream projects that you'd like to tackle in the future? Anything that you haven't gotten to yet that you'd, you're just dying to sink your teeth in? Yes, actually. Um <laughs> This is really interesting. So, um, you know, we're going to have an election in November. And uh, I've just been really thinking about America as a corporate identity. Mm. I wonder what would America look like under a Trump presidency? What would the visual, what, what does the flag look like? What does the money look like? What does the Pledge of Allegiance say, copy-wise? You know, what what does Air Force One look like? It's really interesting, and obviously, maybe this is one of those dream projects that I hope remains a dream. Who knows, regardless of where you stand. But I think it'd be a really interesting uh, exercise to to look at the rebranding of America. Just that, I don't know, I'm really, really interested in that. And I think Trump being such a colorful character, those words have a lot of imagery floating around in my head. Yeah, I've got a, uh, a creative contact in uh, Vancouver up in Canada. And he was talking about, you know, something happened locally with the police and they rolled out. Um, in Vancouver, they rolled out these new police cruisers and they were super intimidating. You know, they're like... They're all blacked out. They're like super aggressive type and everything about it. You know, the, the, the press release that accompanied it, that he was talking about on Facebook was about, you know, protection and, you know, being there at, at your beck and call and serving. And it's a softer message, but he was like, man, they just missed the opportunity to soften the visual identity that goes with this, that when you see that car, you don't think safety, you think, Oh shoot. (laughs) Right. Exactly. So it's, I I think it's, you know, it's that, that same kind of thing, like whether it's a, a sports franchise or a police cruiser or, or your country, like what, what that visual identity is, is saying really speaks a lot in addition to the, to the words that you use. Absolutely. Maybe sometimes a mix signals on purpose who knows, but, you know, regardless of what you feel politically, I think it's just, it's just, it's just been a really interesting thought that I've been kicking around lately. Who would be on the money? Does the money look like now? I don't know. There, you know, what is the national anthem? Like if we, if we rewrote the words, what would that look like? Um, there's so many things. I mean, when you really think of America and the symbols that we have, it's this huge corporate identity that would be an amazing project to reimagine. <laughs> I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be laughing about that idea for, for a couple of days. I think <laughs> I love that idea. 
So maybe along similar lines, you know, as designers, we, we, um, admittedly see the world differently. And sometimes it feels kind of like the matrix where you're the only one who's seeing these things, but you know, what are the things that you see right now, whether it's trends or just things that you're noticing, like what is totally driving you absolutely bonkers right now? I, uh, first I'll say ugly is everywhere. That's the first thing I want to say. Um, and when you really think about the millions of design decisions that are around us every day from posters to everything in the grocery store to the iTunes music library, uh, to any book store or online store, uh, commercials keep going. The ugly is everywhere. Um, and I really just see a drop off in typographic exploration or even like typographic literacy. I mean, if you just look around um, and just, I want you just to count the, all the inch and foot marks that are being oh, used man. for in quotes. It's, it's really bad. It's terrible. And I see it all the time and I'm like, wow. You know, like, my goodness. But it's also a good thing. Even though it drives me crazy, I always tell my students that because ugly is everywhere, this is whenever you reach your hand out and you introduce yourself because you know how to do it right. So it's an opportunity, but it definitely rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, that kind of goes back to your, you mentioned Massimo Vignelli earlier, you know, a lot of his personal mission was to, as he put it, to um, rid the world of vulgarity. So it kind of goes along with your ugly is everywhere quotes. That's great. So I met him twice, actually, at the Obsessive Compulsive um, Symposium. That That's one of the, this is a while back. I think they've changed it. I think, I think it's still, it says compulsive, but. It was at FIT. They used to have this, uh, that's Fashion Institute of Technology. They used to have a uh, design symposium, a workshop series called Obsessive Compulsive. Met Massimo Vignelli. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Doug, when you're looking for inspiration today or, you know, you're having a bad moment, like how do you, how do you refocus or where do you find inspiration? I think my inspiration comes from people, places, and things who travel. Um, I'm, I love to travel. I beat my passport. Uh, I feel like I'm a stamp collector in that little group. Um, but I, I really enjoy uh, the cultures of different types of people. That inspires me regardless of how the day is going what goes on in, in terms of a project. Um, my wife and I just returned from Iceland and in January, we're going to Petra and Jordan. Oh, cool. Just go. And while I'm gone, I always look at patterns and I look at the typography from different languages and how it flows together and whether they're ligatures, even if I can, you know, even if I don't understand the, the language itself, uh, typography is such a beautiful form. And uh, I try to see the creation in whatever it is, uh, wherever we're at in the world. And so just, I guess, people, places, and things, nouns. <laughs> <laughs> I am inspired by nouns. I'm inspired by nouns. Love it. So um, you've mentioned a couple of uh, pretty amazing classic designers. Do you have any particular design heroes? Oh, yeah. I mean, beyond, as you mentioned, Paul Rand, um, Massimo Vignelli is definitely one of them. And I mentioned Tony Despina earlier, but Tibber Coleman, uh, I love mm -hmm. the way he approaches concepts. I, I feel like he's one of the these designers that was so conceptual and so so much better than I understood he was at the time um, when I was just looking at what he did from a visual standpoint. Uh, now that I can appreciate what he's done um, because I'm a little older, um, I can appreciate the way he did what he did conceptually. Uh, it's just really deep. Um, Herb Lubalin, absolutely. Just what he did with typography. I love Saul Bass. 
um, the way that he was able to merge what we do with, you know, on screen. Um, but people who were doing it now, um, like Rem Duplessis, he was the design director of the New York Times Magazine. Now he's at Apple, um, but he was uh, also at GQ before uh, Fred Woodward, who was another mm-hmm. person, Anderson, Paula Cher, um, Eddie O'Hara, you know, everyone at Pentagram, uh, Seymour Cross. There's, there's so many uh, design heroes, and I'm hoping that um, as we lose some of them, Massimo Mignelli specifically, and Tibra Coleman, I, I hope that uh, this new generation, I guess of which I'm part of, and I hope we can replace, or not replace, but I hope that we can be the people that younger designers name. I, I hope that we're reaching the same levels. Um, I hope. Yeah, that's that's huge. It's a pretty pretty high bar, too. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a high bar. <laughs> so, as <laughs> as you're working with students or teaching or kind of in your experience, what's either the best piece of advice you've received, or maybe your favorite piece of advice to share with young designers? Compete with yourself. Knowing that the Olympics just ended, looking at uh, swimmers or runners. Yes, they're competing with the person to the left or to the right of them. But I always tell young designers or students to meet the farthest and fastest that you did the last time. If you can focus on competing with you, then you'll spend time focused on developing your weaknesses and your strengths versus being insecure about the other competition. And at that point, you can be inspired by the talent around you because you see what someone's best looked like, but you're not intimidated at that because you're looking to find your own best knowing that it looks different from everyone else's. Yeah. So that's, that's great. I was, uh, talking to the guys at where Stewart a couple weeks ago and, uh, we were joking around about kind of the, the propensity to, to hate everything, but the most recent project that you've done, which is, <laughs> which is sort of an overstatement. I don't really hate everything I've ever done. That wasn't the most recent one, but, but I think it's that same sort of idea of like always pushing yourself to get better and, and always trying to, to go further than you went that last time around. So I think that, you know, comparison to the, the Olympic swimmers is, is really great. As long as we're not, you know, including Lochte in that comparison. Yes. And not include him. <laughs> so Doug, before we uh, wrap up here, maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit of where they can track down the book and where they can find you online and, you know, best places to, to connect with you. Any listeners who are interested could definitely find more about as well as the book at thinkhowtheythink.com. Um, that's my personal site. You can also get at Barnes & Noble or Amazon or MyDesignShop.com. Oh, and one last thing. If, if there's anyone listening who is looking for a reason or it's an excuse to move to New York or we're contemplating graduate school or something like that, I'd, I'd love to meet you in my class. Um, the Branding and Integrated Communications program at City College. If you're still an undergraduate and thinking about moving, uh, it'd be great to, to meet you at City Tech in the Communication Design Department as well. Very cool. I know we get some listeners in NYC, so guys, be sure and check out Douglas um, and that program if that sounds like a good fit. And uh, Sarah, I appreciate you um, hanging out with us today. Douglas, it's been a pleasure and uh, thank you for being obsessed with design. All right, guys, that's episode number 33 in the books. For all of today's show notes, please check out obsessedshow.com. As always, if you haven't before, head on over to iTunes and hit that subscribe button. And we'd love if you'd leave us a rating and review to help others find the show. Obsessed with Design is a product from the Design Obsessed team at Miles Herndon a branding agency located 13 floors above Monument Circle in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. 
Check us out online. We're at milesherndon.com. Our intro music is Matchbox Girl by Cassie Joe, and our show is always edited by the talented Jen Eds at the Brassy Broadcast Company. Learn more about Jen at brassybroad.com. We've got some great interviews coming up, but as usual, some of our best recommendations for designers to interview come from our listeners. Who do you think we should interview? Tweet to me at Josh Miles or at Obsessed Show and let me know who you'd like to hear from. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.